The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Trading in 2021 coming in, well, like last year, went out. On the move higher. Futures, they are up big. The stocks continue to catch a bid. But nothing can top Bitcoin's move, surging again, breaking through 34,000 before pulling back in a big way. It's down a couple of thousand right now. Trump urging Georgia's top election official to overturn the state's presidential results. That call coming just two days before key Senate runoffs in the state. The U.S. looking to ramp up the rollout of the COVID vaccines, while the U.K. giving out the AstraZeneca vaccine for the first time today. And Tesla shares, they are soaring right now as it delivers a record-breaking number of cars. So turn the key on on Trading on 2021. It is Monday, January 4th, and this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Certainly back in the mood to see you this morning. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Good to be back with you. And by the way, Happy New Year. Here's how your Monday money looks on this first trading day of 2021, and it kind of looks like 2020, but from a stock perspective, I mean that in a good way. Futures, they are well into the green. Dow futures up 179 points right now. The NASDAQ up even higher on a percentage basis. So New Year but same momentum. Of course, all the major indexes up over the last month. Of course, one question is whether small caps can remain red hot. They certainly have been. Now, we have got to check Bitcoin and the cryptos. Could have led with them. It has been a wild 24 hours for Bitcoin and others. Bitcoin is down big right now, off more than $2,500 per coin. But briefly overnight, on some exchanges, it went above 30 4,000 was up literally a couple thousand points, now down 2,500, all in the last 24 to 36 hours. Litecoin and some of the others, like Ethereum, are also down right now as well. We'll have more in the cryptos later on in the show. And Bitcoin is the subject of your RBI. You're going to want to hear this one at the end of the show. In the meantime, now to your Monday checklist. What we'll pick out is the big three events of the week. Of course, The biggest one for the nation is going to be the Georgia Senate race, but we focus on the markets purely for them. Here's what we are looking at today. You get the monthly construction numbers. Now, normally, why would we care about that? Well, because the rebound and the numbers that we get today could show that spending on construction rose above the $1.44 trillion record that we hit last February. Could be some very big numbers there. Now, this week, and we're not exactly sure when, We're going to get fourth quarter results from Carnival Thursday. Could be the day trying to confirm it, but we care. We don't care about the results. We care about the guidance. What is Carnival going to say about the consumer? 
when they'll be back on the oceans, and some of their view into the consumer. And this all topped off on Friday. You got the December jobs number as well as some of the monthly earnings figures as well. So construction, carnival, jobs, your big three events this week. All right, outside of the markets and making headlines this morning, the UK becoming the first nation to roll out the COVID vaccine developed by AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford. The first person was inoculated a couple of hours ago. Now, this is also a two-dose vaccine, but unlike the other options approved for emergency use, it can be transported and stored at normal refrigerated temperatures for at least six months. In other words, it's a lot easier to move and distribute. Now, meantime, here in the United States, officials are trying to speed up the rollout of our vaccines. Yesterday, Operation Warp Speed Chief Monsef Slowry said one option on the table is giving two half doses of the Moderna vaccine. He said the group is in discussions with Moderna and the FDA about it, adding the final decision rests with the FDA. That would, in a sense, double the capacity. It would reduce, of course, the efficacy, but double the amount of vaccine that would be available in the short term. And in corporate news on this Monday, Tesla reporting it delivered 180, 570,000 cars in the fourth quarter, topping its previous record and all Wall Street expectations. For the year, Tesla delivered 499,550. Where are the other 450? Just shy of its most recent guidance of 500,000. But investors like it. That stock up 3% right now in the extended hours. All right, back now to the markets and your money and what is being called the everything rally. From stocks to emerging markets to commodities, Bitcoin, real estate, other hard assets, investors have been piling their money into, well, just about everything since the pandemic lows last March. Since then, the S&P 500 is up a cool 68%. Global stocks, as measured by the MSCI, All World XUS ETF, that's a mouthful, up 62%. And a major commodity index, up nearly 80%. This is only the third time going back 50 years that all those investments have climbed so much in such a short time, according to Dow Jones market data. That would have been a good RBI. Let's talk now more about all of this with Victoria Green, founding partner at G Squared Private Wealth Management. Victoria, happy new year. Good early morning, really early where you are. Thanks for joining us. Is the number one question from your clients, Victoria? How much longer can this rally roll on? Or if not, what is it? Yeah, people are certainly, but there's almost two sides to that story. You have one camp that says this has to fall apart and you almost have the other, the the FOMO fear of missing out camp that says, well, gosh, I I have to get heavier into stocks. So quite frankly, I think this this rally has legs. I think it can continue to go forward. I think the, the vaccine coming, I know the rollout's been a little slow. We've got a big week this week with Georgia and then the, the confirmation. But at the same point, you know, there's a lot more upside, I think, in stocks than there are in bonds. And you look around at the landscape and, and if, with the markets getting better, most likely, and the vaccine getting rolled out, there's a good story behind stocks. Even if they are stretched on valuations, valuations aren't stretched equally across the market. Tech valuations, probably a little stretched. You know, some of the value stocks, not enough. I don't want to start off the new year, Victoria, by asking you to dip into the world of politics. There's plenty of other channels that do that. But from a market's perspective, people say that it does matter. How closely are you watching that, that Georgia vote tomorrow? 
Certainly, very closely. Both Georgia and then what happens Wednesday, though I think Wednesday is going to be messy but go through just fine. Georgia, quite frankly, the, we think that it, they'll hold probably one of two seats uh, and there could be a relief rally with that. And obviously, if the Democrats do flip both seats, that could actually ex- have a sell-off happen because then you might have some more aggressive tax policies and other things the market isn't, com- uh, isn't counting in right now. So you look at this and say Georgia matters a lot, but consensus in the baseline, which you want to invest towards the baseline and what is probable, not what is possible, is that uh, the Republicans will hang on to at least one of the two seats. Polling is really tight. We did see polling fall apart a little bit in November. You know, turnout's high. Weather's supposed to be good tomorrow across Georgia. So we'll just have to see what the, the voters turn up and say. But certainly either one could pop the market or bring it back down to earth. Yeah, and I know that you and I have talked about because you're there in Texas. Some of the some of the oil stocks. I know that you you like Chevron. You have. You still do. Obviously, fossil fuel companies could be direct, either likely not beneficiaries, but certainly impacted by a democratic sweep or perhaps any big climate change legislation that may come out of the Biden administration. But all that said, you are still a believer in Chevron. Why? Absolutely. So it's one of the best integrated oils out there. Uh, they actually have almost a 6% dividend right yield, right, dividend yield right now. You know, they're a great company. And yeah, fossil fuels is, is slowly pivoting more towards solar and renewables, but that's a slow pivot. You're, you're turning an aircraft carrier there. It's not going to happen overnight. And they actually are going to pick up, I believe, some market share when you've seen some of the integrated European oils start to step back a little bit from traditional oil and gas and pivot more towards renewables, your BPs and your shells, that's actually more market share globally for Chevron. And so we think there's still a lot of upside in oil and gas. Uh, We think that industry is is critically important still to this country. And so with oil around 45 to 50, that's well within Chevron's break even. They have a great balance sheet, strong cash flow, very capital discipline. There's a lot to like about Chevron going into next year and very, very conservatively valued. You want to look around this market right now and say, what has upside? Mm-hmm. And I think oil and gas is a great recovery story. Yeah, you start to hear more deep value players say, listen, it's ugly. We may not have to like it. It's not ESG, but from a value perspective, it might be there. You also like CrowdStrike. We'll get into that maybe next time. Victoria Green, G Squared. Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Victoria. We'll see you soon. Take care. Happy New Year, Brian. All right. Happy New Year as well. And we are just getting started on a very busy Monday. Up next, speaking of oil, OPEC meeting virtually today in Vienna. And it might be market moving if they don't get their acts together. What investors need to watch there. Dow futures up 178. We'll talk more about Georgia. A lot to do. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back. Good Monday morning and Happy New Year, by the way. Let's get a check right now on oil prices, which ended the year on the rise. In fact, energy and energy stocks are pretty hot in the month of December. Right now, we're seeing oil up about 1% today to 50 bucks. We'll go 49 bucks, we'll call it. Now, OPEC will meet virtually today in Vienna. 
the start of what will now be monthly meetings, at least for a while, in part because with COVID and lockdowns, global oil demand estimates are being adjusted almost daily. So OPEC is going to meet virtually more so they can be more flexible. Now, today, the group will consider raising output by 500,000 barrels per day. But most market watchers and those that I am speaking with believe that OPEC will keep output levels where they are at a daily cut of 7.7 million barrels from the pre-pandemic levels, as it's simply may be too risky to add any barrels to a market right now, given the shakiness of global demand. But of course, it is OPEC, so you never know. Let's get more insight now with Clay Siegel. He is Managing Director at Vortexa. They track floating offshore storage. Clay, it's good to see you. Happy New Year, my friend. I wish we were in Vienna together. I'm sure we will get back there, but virtually anyway, what do you believe that OPEC and its group will come to a conclusion of today? Hey, good morning, Brian, and Happy New Year to you. Yeah, you know, they're still facing a really uh, difficult balancing act between OPEC and OPEC+. Plus. But I think that so far they're doing a good job of, of managing that balance. If you look at it through the lens of, of price stability and inventory stability as well that we track. But that, you know, that the balance is tenuous and it really all hangs on the timing of recovery in transportation and transportation fuel demand that's just really been badly curtailed by the, the coronavirus pandemic measures. So, you know, OPEC itself thinks that demand is going to increase by about 6 million barrels per day uh, in 2021 versus last year. But remember, they're still, still holding off of the market 7.2 million barrels per day. And there's more to come eventually from Iran, too. So this is a, a balancing act. And, you know, to the uh, projections for what they're going to decide today, right, the conservative play would probably be to not add more oil supply right now, pending more signs of that demand recovery. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, hopefully a relatively drama-free meeting. It seems like over the weekend, Barkindo and everybody else was kind of pushing the group toward that end. Now, the wild card for OPEC lately has been Iraq. The country's in shambles. The government effectively is not quite dissolved, but it's getting there. The currency has been devalued massively. But you've got some great data and a cool graphic, actually, about Libya coming into play as another big wild card. Is it accurate that California maybe buying crude oil from Libya? Our data indicates that California is a destination of at least one uh, tanker that's en route right now. So let's look at it from the big picture. Libya's return to this marketplace at this time is posing a pretty big challenge. And it's actually kind of, so they look really strong right now at about 1.2 million barrels per day. And uh, that's the most since April of 2019 for those guys. It poses a competitive challenge for them for, let's say, uh, in China. Selling oil into China, it poses competition for some of the Mideast Gulf suppliers. Uh, Selling into Europe, it poses competition for OPEC members like uh, Algeria and Nigeria. And the one you wouldn't really think about, but it's still really important, is the United States, because we developed quite the toehold in the European export market over recent months and recent quarters. But now that new supply of light sweet crude that competes with U.S. is pushing out some of those opportunities for United States exporters in Europe. The graphic that we saw from our data is really interesting because we're actually tracking a cargo of Libyan, not only competing against United States exporters in Europe in their backyard, but making its way all the way around, you saw from the Atlantic, around South America, and indeed headed toward California. So the, the ship's the, the too big to go through the Panama the Canal. I mean, 
it just seems it just seems bizarre that it could be even profitable enough to, to charter the ship for that long at oil prices where they are. Speaking of, before we let you go, Clay, I know you track inventories. Kind of give us an idea as to where prices may be. You probably read my predictions. I'm not promoting. I'm just saying they're up online. One of them was I thought oil could end the year stronger, not by much, maybe around 55 bucks a barrel on a variety of factors. Am I wrong? And if I am, tell me. Lay it out. No, you're not wrong. I mean, we could see prices kind of hover here and trade sideways for a while. We've seen inventories onshore pretty stable. In the United States, commercial crude inventories around 500 million barrels on hand for the last several months. And we're also seeing uh, floating storage, the oil that we track on the tankers offshore, draining. And so, you know, you are seeing signs of backwardation returning to the crude oil term structure, and that could be conducive to a sideways trade a little bit higher in the 50s starting into the new year. Clay Siegel, Vortexa, the virtual OPEC meeting today. Clay, we appreciate your time. Happy New Year again. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much, Clay. All right, up next, bizarre new details on a Chinese business tycoon who was poisoned to death. Where in the world is Alibaba founder Jack Ma? He hasn't been seen in months. We'll get both of these big stories, Eunice Yoon, live in Beijing, next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, Ed. Good morning. Now to a headline that would be straight out of a Hollywood screenplay if it wasn't so real and so sad. The deadly poisoning of a Chinese video game developer billionaire allegedly carried out by one of his colleagues. Eunice Yun joining us now with Beijing. More on this story. Eunice. Thanks so much, Brian. Well, you know, the death took place on Christmas Day, but as you could imagine, people are still talking about this story even today. Uh, the billionaire is a 39-year-old man who's named Lin Qi. He was uh, the founder of uh, a gaming company called Yuzu that's probably best known overseas for producing an online strategy game called Game of Thrones Winter is Coming. Uh, the founder, uh, Lin, had also had big plans to work with Netflix and the creators of Game of Thrones to adapt to TV a series, a sci-fi novel called Three Body Problem. Now, 
uh, Lynn's Hope was believed to uh, turn the novel and the trilogy, which is very, very popular here, into a kind of almost like a, a Chinese version of Star Wars with lots of games and TV series as well as films. And that could have been one of the, the disputes that he supposedly had with one of his colleagues. Uh, Shanghai police say that they have put in custody a man named Mr. Xu. And uh, people close to Lin say that it is Xu Yao, who is the former CEO of the film division. And all the gossip has been that the two were having disputes over pay and over uh, possible film productions based on this novel. So... Um, because of that, and again, Brian, a lot of this is speculation as to exactly how he was poisoned. Uh, still a lot of questions. Um, state media has said that that it was through aged PUR-T. Uh, there was also a theory that he was poisoned, uh, that the poison was put into to his medication, and that the poison was a type of neurotoxin that's usually detected in pufferfish. Bizarre story there and, and tragic for his family. Now, on a different note, a, big, a bigger name, but one that I guess we're not really sure of right now is Jack Ma. There are reports out that he may have, quote, disappeared. And I say, quote, because he did not appear on his public talent show. He's got a TV show called Africa's Business Heroes. He was replaced by a different Alibaba official. But apparently he has not been seen in at least two months. And there is growing speculation that basically... Where in the world is Jack Ma? Yeah, that speculation has been around uh, since October, uh, right after he had a very big speech where he was highly critical and openly critical of Chinese regulators when it came to the ant, uh, not only to ant, but also to fintech generally. Since then, he has gone very low profile. Um, but uh, as to whether there's been speculation that he might have gone missing, but uh, here in China, people have been talking more about how he's he's being pretty quiet. And people who are, are close to some of the executives say that he has been traveling back and forth to Beijing over the past couple of months, that he is still in town. Um, and one other uh, expectation here is that um, that. That he that the government wouldn't necessarily want to go after Jack Ma himself, and that maybe they would try to rein in the company Ant first and then Alibaba instead. And the reason for that is that they don't the the, the authorities here are kind of in this this situation where they want to make sure that they encourage or at least are seen as encouraging entrepreneurship at the same time keeping them under wraps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's hope Jack Ma resurfaces soon there. Very uh, interesting story growing on Ma. Yunish Yun, thank you very much, live in Beijing. All right, coming up, President Trump urging, prodding, pleading with Georgia's top election official to overturn President-elect Biden's victory in the states. And the bizarre hour-long phone call is all on tape. We will head to Washington next. All right, welcome back to the developing scandal now that is rocking Washington and the nation. Audio, President Trump's pressuring Georgia's Secretary of State to try to overturn the election results there. All this coming ahead of tomorrow's special Senate race in Georgia and just days before the Electoral College results are set to be certified. Let's talk now about all this. Eamon Javers joining us with the very latest big news weekend. Eamon, I don't know if you listened to the audio. I read the transcript. Uh, that was a... 
Uh, an interesting, often bizarre, and certainly high-pressure phone call from the president often over the weekend. Yeah, Brian, that's right. It's an extraordinary development. We've never seen anything quite like this in American history. The president of the United States calling local officials in Georgia, pressuring them to overturn a valid Democratic election that went for his opponent. Those state officials in Georgia holding the line, telling the president he simply had his facts wrong and there is no path to victory for him. Here's a little snippet of the phone call. This was audio first obtained by The Washington Post. It's now also been obtained by NBC News. Take a listen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state, and flipping the state is a great testament to our country. So the president insisting beyond all evidence that he won the state uh, when, in fact, he lost the state of Georgia. He lost the presidential election. And Joe Biden will be sworn in as the president of the United States on January 20th. The election results, Brian, have been certified. The Electoral College has voted this election is over. And yet the president of the United States continues to try to find some way to pressure officials to reverse the election and keep him in power for another four years Unclear where all this goes now. This is an, a chaotic start now uh, to an important week uh, in, the, in Washington, D.C. and in American democracy. The first thing we've got uh, today, we've got the president and the, vice, the former vice president, the president-elect, uh, both campaigning in Georgia for their slate of Georgia Senate candidates. Remember, two Georgia Senate seats are on the ballot this week in that special runoff election. Uh, that means that the control of the United States Senate hangs in the balance on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, we've got this extraordinary moment now uh, where the U.S. Congress will meet to certify the election results. Uh, and a number of United States senators have said they will object to the election results as they have been certified, as they have been uh, called by the Electoral College. Uh, that's expected to go nowhere, uh, but it adds an element of drama uh, and resistance uh, by some Republicans to the idea uh, that this election uh, was fair uh, and free uh, and should proceed uh, on the normal course. Uh, so it's the Republicans don't have the votes here to stop Biden being sworn in. But there's going to be a dramatic moment of resistance where they're going to sort of metaphorically lay their bodies across the tracks to try to prevent that from happening. Fascinating note, Tom Cotton, a very conservative Trump ally uh, in the Senate, said yesterday uh, he is not going to back this effort to object to the election results. He said the founding fathers uh, set up a plan and a path for elections and we should follow it. Brian, back to you. I read Senator Cotton's statement, a big Trump supporter, of course. He said basically, and I'll summarize, that he did not like the results. He may not have agreed with the results, but he will support the results and the way the founding fathers set up the Electoral College. So this might be a more symbolic move on Wednesday. Eamon, going back to the phone call, there is some chatter out there, some articles that, that in some way the call may have violated either state and or federal election law. Is there any talk out there that there may be a move against Trump on this? Well, Democratic officials in Georgia certainly say that they, there will be, and they're calling for an investigation. Uh, you can imagine that the president has now exposed himself to additional legal difficulty uh, after the election. You know, the normal course of action here would be 
for Congress to move forward with an impeachment inquiry if they felt that there was something uh, cr potentially criminal or impeachable in this. Uh, and there certainly are valid arguments that there are. Uh, but the timing of it, uh, given that the president only has a few days left in his term in office, uh, means that there's just no way Congress is going to be able to move forward with an impeach impeachment uh, or even impeachment and removal mm -hmm. if it would get down the line to that to that point. Uh, you know, at this juncture. So the question is, are there legal hurdles, uh, headaches for the president after he leaves office? And then at that point, he'll have fewer of the protections of a sitting president of the United States. And I, I think the president's opened himself up a real can of worms here. And, and there could be long lasting consequences to this. There certainly are long lasting consequences for yeah. the democracy uh, when you get a losing side that simply does not accept the results and is trying to find any way to overturn those results after the voters have spoken, Brian. Yeah, and let's just hope and sort of pray this is a one-off because the pandemic for years and elections to come. Eamon Javers, thank you very much, buddy. We'll see you all day here on CNBC. Joining us now is Jimmy Petakoukas of the American Enterprise Institute and a CNBC contributor. Jimmy, I mean, I'm not even really sure where to begin, to be honest with you, but I'll, I guess I'll ask this, which is uh, obviously the Senate race is hugely important to the, to the GOP do you think that this Trump phone call will damage their chances of keeping one or both seats in Georgia? So those are pretty close races. Uh, the polls have really tightened. Uh, the betting markets have really tightened. And I think the theory that this would be bad for Republicans, that it has once again the president saying that there's something wrong with the voting in Georgia, that it is not a fair vote. And if you want to make the leap that that will that people will think about that, and you do have some of this president's more extreme supporters saying don't vote, uh, reject the entire process, I doubt this is a positive for Republicans. What is looking to be a very close, and as Eamon just said, an enormously important uh, election for 2021. Yeah, in fact, I just looked right now, Jimmy, and, and yesterday overnight, Joel Ossoff has now he is above. David Perdue on the predicted betting market. Perdue had a sizable lead. Again, we're talking about the predicted market, so take it for what it's worth. It may not be matter at all. But right now, we are seeing the Democrat getting a bid above David Perdue. If we get a Democratic sweep, there's a lot of implications. Taxes, capital gains, Section 230, infrastructure. But you've also got the countervailing weight of Joe Manchin, who's sort of effectively a Republican in some ways, Susan Collins, if the Democrats win both, how much do you think will really happen in Congress? Right. Well, the Republicans should win. The biggest economic event of next year already happened. That's the stimulus. Uh, if the Democrats win, this, it's not like what people were talking about before the election, that Democrats were going to have such a majority that we were going to get a Green New Deal, uh, you know, all you know, massive tax hikes. That's not going to happen with a narrow majority. You mentioned Manchin. You mentioned the. Uh, you also have the Arizona senators uh, who are come from a you know a very close state. I think you, in that scenario, I think you still get tax hikes. You don't get the full Biden uh, tax hike plan. Uh, you probably get higher income tax rates, uh, a bump up uh, of the corporate rate. Those ta uh, Trump tax cuts don't get extended. So I think that's. I mean that's significant. It's not what some Democrats perhaps were dreaming about. You get more spending. You don't get like the full Green New Deal spending, but it's going to be a pretty significant difference versus uh, a split government. 
Yeah, it certainly will be there. And uh, I think I said Joel John Ossoff, obviously. I mean, this is going to be maybe the sea change I think the Democrats have been looking for. But at the same time, you've got the House, which is not getting a lot of attention. Let's not forget the House has the narrowest margin. The, the Democrats thought they were going to gain seats. They lost seats. And now you've got Pelosi, who was renamed Speaker of the House last night, is now having to deal with the smallest margin in the House, I believe, in almost or exactly 100 years. So should investors, should we all expect huge changes regardless of what happens in Georgia tomorrow? Or do you think this will be a rather centrist next couple of years? Yeah, I'm, yeah, we often forget about the House. It's great that you mentioned this. This does not seem like the environment that you would expect, you know, for just, you know, this sort of radical change that, again, I think a lot of Democrats were really dreaming about when they thought they were going to have huge gains in the House, that they were going to have, you know, a very sizable uh, Senate majority. So I think you get sort of the original Biden light agenda, you know, which isn't insignificant. It's the difference between tax increases and no tax increases. It's the difference between getting a, a second stimulus, uh, maybe getting something closer to a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan and not getting anything like that. I mean, those are still big differences. You have a lot more spending. You have somewhat higher taxes. Mm-hmm. But remember that markets were looking for something perhaps even more significant, and they seemed to think that was just fine. Uh, they seemed to like the $900 billion dollars. So I think this is I think there might be some upsides that they tend to be focusing. They focus in the past a lot more on the potential stimulus versus uh, the tax tax hikes. So I think I think it's sort of status quo to maybe, you know, uh, something on the plus side. Yeah. And let's not forget, Manchin is Senator Manchin has said, even if it's 50 50, he will not vote on the Democratic side for some of these huge changes like packing the court or whatever it may be. Either way, it's going to be an interesting 48 hours. Jimmy Petakoukas, Jimmy, a pleasure. Happy New Year, my friend. Take care. See you soon. All right. Well, coming up, folks, Bitcoin marking two big milestones in just the last 24 hours. It was up over 34,000, and now it's down more than 4,000. What's going on? We'll talk cryptos next. All right, welcome back. It is time now for today's RBI. And happy birthday, Bitcoin. You turned 12 years old on Sunday. You're really starting to grow up fast. You've, you've gone from 10,000 to 33,500 in just about 90 days, but that's nothing. Investopedia notes the first real trade on Bitcoin valued you at just about 8 cents about a decade ago. So uh, carry the one. That's about a cool 42 million percent gain in a little over 10 years. Let's repeat that. 42 million percent. If that sounds ridiculous, let's put it another way. Let's say some early adopter bought $1 worth of Bitcoin when it was valued at just a dime for fun or whatever. They're now sitting on 10 coins. Right now, that $1 deal is worth $335,000. And remember, the story that poor guy in England who a couple of years ago accidentally threw away an old laptop that stored 7,500 Bitcoin on it. Well, not the pile on, but that guy's stash would be worth about $250 million today. Maybe it is time to break out the bulldozers and happy 12th birthday, Bitcoin. You give us some, some incredible stories over the years, but do us a favor and skip all that teenage angst, will you? Random, but interesting. All right, let's talk more now about Bitcoin and these wild moves that we have seen. Lawrence Lewitton joining us, 
He is editor on Coindesk Exchange. And Lawrence, it's great to see you again, my friend. And, and what, a, what a time to have you on, because when I wrote that yesterday, Bitcoin was soaring. Now Bitcoin's down $4,000. Maybe I should avoid Bitcoin stories because they simply move too quickly. Still, it's been a heck of a run. What's with all the volatility in the last 24 hours? Well, you know, Brian, we're seeing uh, still some institutional interest in Bitcoin. Uh, initially, we saw it going in, uh, buying Bitcoin. And you could tell that because we saw about 35,000 uh, Bitcoin leave Coinbase alone, which is a, a one of the larger uh, retail exchanges. Uh, when, when sizes of that amount leave an exchange, that, particularly that exchange, that means it's going over to an over-the-counter market, which means there were buyers. Somebody came in and bought a significant amount, uh, somebody with an institutional size amount. Um, subsequently, there's been some institutional selling in the over-the-counter market. So, you know, again, Bitcoin is a vo very volatile uh, asset class still, uh, asset still. Uh, nonetheless, um, you know, there is increased in institutional interest in it. Institutions these days, you know, five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, even yeah. when you talked about institutional interest, you meant mom and pop shops. Now you, you're starting to look at the mass mutuals of the world. BlackRock's more interested in it. You have uh, Paul Tudor Jones, Stanley Druckenmiller. You know, they're, they're talking up Bitcoin. So it, it's, a different, it's a different environment than it was a few uh, months ago even. But I'm going to speak in the, very broad terms, which is dangerous, Lawrence, when it comes to <laughs> talking about anything crypto-related. But yeah, as you know, but hey, it's TV. They have tended to trade together to a point. Let's bring up that graphic we just had up. Bitcoin is now down 10%. You have, I think it was Ethereum. I saw it. Glance at it. might be Correct. flat or even slightly higher. I know Goldman likes Ethereum. So, Are they starting to become their own things? Are they starting to trade independently? Or do you still see them sort of moving with the overall crypto tide? You know, over the weekend, uh, getting back to that, there was some rotation into so-called altcoins. If you look at the 20 assets that we track in the Coindesk 20, uh, almost all of them are up except for Bitcoin and one other one. So uh, overall, uh, the alts are up, uh, particularly the, if there's going to be an alt that's up right now, it'd probably be Ether because it, it's, it's, one, it's the second largest by market cap. Um, it also has its own narrative that's separate from Bitcoin. It's used as the uh, underlying um, uh, network for a lot of DeFi, which uh, de de decentralized finance, which is a new uh, realm in finance and crypto finance that, that's been growing over the past few months. So that's where a lot of interest is now. You know, people are turning and they're saying, OK, what's the next hot move? And so, of course, some people are looking at Ethereum and they're also rebalancing their portfolios such to do that. Yeah, it's Ripple XRP that is up right now. There's so many, by the way, coins. I mean, there's no way to get into all of them. There are some that are trading for pennies, yeah. some that are obviously tens of thousands of dollars. Right yeah. now, Lawrence, what would be the most interesting storyline around Bitcoin that you are following? So, again, it's the institutional interest still. The, you know, and, of course, there is the idea that over the long term, uh, we're going to start to see some more interest just because from a portfolio management point of view, uh, correlations to S&P 500 correlations to uh, gold. Uh, you know, when you look at the 90-day correlation with, the, with gold, it's 0.25. That's the co correlation coefficient. Uh, it, with the S&P 500, it's 0.22. So even though you have a high 
volatility asset. You have a, you know, the at the money volatility in, implied volatility in the in the options market for Bitcoin right now is about a hundred percent. Nonetheless, you had high returns. So when you have high returns, high vol, but it, despite high volatilities and low uh, correlations for portfolio manager, you look at that and you go, okay, well, you know, I need to rebalance my portfolio in a way that makes sense. And so you, you might see more people just doing it from that perspective, adding to adding crypto to their portfolios, just because the uh, correlations are, are lower relative to other asset classes. Lawrence Lewitton, a real pleasure to get you on and good to see you again on Coindesk. Lawrence, a lot of storylines here. We appreciate you getting up early. Thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, Lawrence. Wow, Bitcoin down 4,000 right now in the Coinbase Exchange. Obviously, something we're going to keep a very close eye on today. All right, also keeping an eye on home prices because they are soaring, but not exactly where you might expect. We're going to bring you some of the very surprising hottest markets in America. And if you have not already, it's kind of new, subscribe to our new podcast, Worldwide Exchange, every day in audio form. So if you miss out on the show or if you're out west or whatever it might be, you could check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps, the Wexcast. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Well, are you one of the millions, perhaps, thinking about buying a new home this year? Well, you might want to hold on to your wallets and put down the phone to that mortgage broker. Prices are skyrocketing, but not where you might expect. The pandemic has caused big demand for big homes in smaller cities and prices. They are following suit. Diana, joining us now with the details. Diana, where are the, the new hottest markets in America? <laughs> One word, Brian, the middle. Look, home prices nationally rose a remarkable 8.4% in October annually on the S&P Case-Shiller Index. That's up from a 7% gain just the month before and is the largest one-month move in over a decade. Now, while prices are gaining everywhere, there is a significant shift in where they're gaining most. For decades, prices have surged on the coasts in major markets like San Francisco, L.A., Seattle, Boston, New York, and Miami. They are still going up there, but it is the middle that is the new star. Cities like Indianapolis, Kansas City, Boise, Austin, and all the three biggest cities in Ohio, Memphis and Knoxville and Tennessee, both very strong. These have all been historically more affordable markets and markets that generally have more inventory of homes for sale. So you don't see these crazy spikes in prices. That makes the suddenly strong price growth in the middle of the country that much more striking. Now, much of it likely to do with the pandemic and the ability to work from anywhere now. People are heading to less expensive markets where they can get more space and land for their money. But that's now making those markets less affordable, of course. In fact, at the end of 2020, the median price of homes in just over half the counties in the U.S., 55 percent, were considered less affordable to the average wage earner than they have been historically. And that's according to Adam Data Solutions. That's a significantly larger share than the same time the year before, of course, pre-pandemic, Brian. But I guess mortgage rates, they've been low, Diana, and you, I'm sure you look at them all the time. Is there any indication they're going to move significantly higher in the next couple of months and quarters? 
No indication that they're going to move significantly higher. We expect them to stay pretty low this year. But these higher prices, they're wiping out the kind of gains you're getting from the mortgage rates. Because actually those very low mortgage rates that we've seen over the past six, eight months, they've been fueling these prices. They give buyers more purchasing power. Therefore, prices go up. And at this point, prices are up so much more that that benefit you're getting from low mortgage rates really being wiped out right now. And that's going to hurt sales very soon. We've already seen it over the last three months pending home sales that signed contracts have been lower every month for the past three months. So it could be a lot slower spring this year than we might have expected because of these high prices. Cleveland is the new cost cob. There's your headline, Diana Olick. Thank you very much for joining us. The middle, red hot. It's about time. Diana, thank you. All right, joining us now is Wells Fargo Chief Economist Jay Bryson, just out with her 2021 outlook and 2020 year and recap. Jay, you just heard Diana's piece. You had a really a, a fascinating graphic. I read the piece yesterday where you showed rents in major areas and, and indexed against each other and San Francisco just falling off a cliff. That's that blue line that we are showing right now. What do you make of this this massive real estate trend and swing, how's it going to impact the overall economic outlook? Well, Brian, I mean, I think what's going on is, is what, you know, kind of Diane just um, highlighted there is that people are moving away from some of those West Coast and East Coast sort of cities. They're moving more into the middle. And as that happens, it's causing rents to come down in those cities. Now, is that going to have a big major, you know, macroeconomic impact? Yeah, I don't think so. I think it's more of a micro sort of thing. I mean, I wouldn't read into this like there's a housing bubble going on in the United States right uh, right now. I mean, we're not back to where we were back in, in 2005. Um, there's not overbuilding or anything like that. So it shouldn't have any ma- major macro um, impacts, but it could have some impact in some of those uh, particular cities. Yeah, and we get the construction numbers out today. Normally, Jay, I would, not, I would pay them zero attention, but I put them on our big three events the week because we could actually have bigger numbers, a record high number, over 1.44 trillion as everybody's trying to build out homes to meet not just pandemic demand, but demographics or destiny. The first millennial will turn 40 years old this year. There's 80 or 85 million of them. How big is the the demographic head or tailwind, I should say, on many parts of this economy as well? Yeah, that's uh, that's right. I mean, we do look for housing to have a, another good year in 2021, because, as you point out, the millennials are getting into their childbearing years right now. And, it, you know, it's great to have a, a two bedroom flat in midtown Manhattan, uh, you know, when you're when you're single. But now that you're having children, you're starting to see that those people starting to move out to, to the suburbs. Uh, right now. And, and we think that, you know, with, with mortgage rates remaining you know, relatively low this year, that that will be that will fuel um, another, you know, another strong year for, for for housing here. So what's the most important thing in the next couple of days or weeks or months, Jay, that you and your team are going to be focused on squarely to give us some kind of a crystal ball as to where we're headed? The pandemic, the pandemic, the pandemic. I mean, that's what it boils down to right now. Um, it, we, you know, it looks like we're going to get off to uh, 2021 you know, on a macro basis on a relatively weak note. Uh, we lost momentum um, over the last two months and with, with some, uh, some restrictions here. And so it really depends on what happens with the pandemic uh, you know, in the coming weeks and months. As the vaccine rolls out, that's, yeah. that's good news. That should lead to some reopening or more reopening later this year. 
but you know, here in the in the near term, it's really going to depend upon the evolution of, of what's happening here with the pandemic. It all boils down, I think, to that. Yeah, well, well said. And and the vaccine, the rollouts, hopefully, will continue to ramp up. Jay Bryson, really appreciate you coming on Wells Fargo Securities. Thank you, Jay. Best to you and yours. Happy New Year. All right. Well, that does it for us here on the first Worldwide Exchange of 2021. We'll leave you with Dow Futures up big, Bitcoin down a couple of thousand bucks. We'll see you tomorrow. Squawk and the gang are picking up the coverage in their new year next. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.